Sarah from The Journey and welcome to the weekly. Now, I don't know about you, but I never seem to have quite enough hours in the day to fit everything in. And I certainly don't seem to have enough hours in the day to read all the interesting things that are out there. We thought we probably weren't alone in this. So we created the weekly, which is a condensed version of all the key things we've been looking at over the last week or so in an easy digestible podcast form that you can listen to on the go. Now, you might be wondering, if you're new to us, what even is the journey? Well, we are dedicated to bringing you the latest science and evidence-based research around everything to do with conception, pregnancy, and the early years of a little person's life. The reality is, as the world looks very different from the one that existed even just 10, 15 years ago, but in many cases, the advice we're given hasn't changed. There's a lot of fake news out there as well, so we're dedicated to bringing you practical things you can do, most crucially all backed by science. So without further ado, what is on offer this week? Okay, so four main topics this week. Number one is the two-week wait. What's that? Well, anyone that's tried to get pregnant will know all about that period of time between ovulation to hopefully implantation and then taking a pregnancy test. It can feel like an eternity. So we're going to be looking at some myth busting and also some tips and tricks to get you through that. Next up, it's about vitamin D. Did you know that this is actually a steroid hormone? What we're realizing quite fast is that this vitamin slash hormone is playing a massive role in many, many areas of crucial development, especially around the areas we're looking at. So we're going to be tying it all together and really giving you what you absolutely need to know for every stage of the journey. Next up, talking of supplements, is our favorite supplements. So pulling everything together. Now we have a love-hate relationship with supplements, but we're going to be telling you exactly the ones that we think could be worth investigating for each stage of the journey and why, as well as some of our favorite ones. Finally, if you're anything like me, meditation has been something you've probably wanted to do and know is good to do, but you've struggled really how to do it, or maybe it's just me. We speak to Emmy Brammer, who is one of our resident experts and who is the only person who's allowed me to actually start meditating, and we give the top uh, top tips and tricks um, for helping you if you find it a struggle, because really what the science says is that if you can do it, it can be helpful for every stage of quite a stressful journey that is a path to parenthood. So let's kick off. Okay, the two-week wait. This is the time between ovulation, potential implantation, and hopefully a positive pregnancy test. And we're going to be separating fact from fiction and what you can do during that seemingly eternal wait. Now, let's take a step back. So you've done everything you should do, you know when you're ovulating, you've been getting jiggy with it every other day in the lead up to that, and now you've got this weight. And if you're anything like me, you'll be watching for any signs, any symptoms out of the norm, any twinges, and although it's too early to take a test, you can feel super impatient and it can feel like an eternity to wait until that point. So what do you do? Well, number one, if you can resist the urge to Google during this time, then do that. You can end up going down a proper rabbit hole on chat forums and websites, and actually you can end up feeling more anxious than not. And frankly, when it comes to the internet, 
you've also realized that you can pretty much find any answer you're looking for accurate or not. So instead, we've come along with our top tips, myth busting to cope with this two week window. So let's set the pace. Um, The first thing to do is to get your head in the right place. And first and foremost, and perhaps the hardest thing to do, particularly amongst the control freaks in us, is to acknowledge that at this stage, a lot of this is now broadly out of your hands. And that can be frustrating in some ways, but actually can be a really good reason to just relax. One thing is good to note in terms of getting your head in the right space is that even under perfect conditions, you only have around 25% chance of pregnancy each month. That might seem like a depressing stat, but actually what this is trying to say is that the vast majority of people who have no complications will get pregnant within six months to a year. It just might not happen immediately. So it's always good to just put your expectations there and to keep your chin up and keep keep positive for the next time. So don't worry, if it doesn't happen this time around and you have no complications, it will most likely happen within the next six months to a year. The other thing to note is that again, without many major complications, the majority of the time that doesn't work if you're getting all your timings right is actually because of something that's completely not in your control, which is to do with chromosomal abnormalities around the egg and the sperm. So at this point, number one thing to do is to try and relax. Now, if you do want to think about giving your eggs and sperm a helping hand around the edges, particularly when it comes to protecting cells from DNA damage, there are a few things you can do. And if you want to dig into that in more detail, we've got a lot more on the site and actually a lot more on the the latter part of this podcast, but check out www.thejourney.com. The next question that we often get is, will exercising hurt your chances of implantation? The answer is unless you're doing something totally extreme or you're doing extreme exercise when you're not used to doing anything, you really don't need to worry. In fact, moderate exercise can actually be helpful. And the reason is moderate activity increases insulin sensitivity. And again, for more detail, check out the site. Bottom line is some of the research has suggested that reducing, um, or increasing, sorry, insulin sensitivity can help with implantation. Now, once again, as always with everything, it's not rocket science, it's just about moderation. Because on the flip side, there is some research suggesting that very, very vigorous activity can lower something called leptin. And leptin does appear to be important in regulating implantation and endometrial receptivity. So again, it's not rocket science, it's just about being moderate. That being said, you should always listen to your body. And did you know that your body actually reacts differently to exercise depending on the point of your cycle? So essentially what happens is your hormones naturally fluctuate during the cycle and that can cause your body to react differently to exercise. This is why you probably notice that some some days you go to the gym and you absolutely kill it. And other days with no apparent change, you have low energy and you can barely make it onto the treadmill. And this is because of your hormones. Now, the question is, where are your hormones around implantation? Now, the time between ovulation and menstruation is known as the luteal phase. And this is when ideally implantation, or this is when implantation can potentially occur and ideally we want it to happen. So during this phase, initially you get a bit of a dip of estrogen 
which has been on the rise during the first phase, which is known as the follicular phase, but it then rises again alongside the hormone progesterone. And it's progesterone that can cause a bit of a dip in your mood and your energy. So you might well be noticing that at this phase in your cycle. So the question is what to do during this time. Now we've got lots on the site from our pre and postnatal specialist, Natalie Ferris. So again, check out that for much more detail. But Natalie basically advises that now's the time to reduce overall load, use more moderate weights, which is probably what you'll feel like doing anyway. And things like resistance training, Pilates, yoga, swimming are also really good. So once again, we've got tips and tricks how to exercise for conception and fertility on the site. Next up, what about supplements? Now, ideally, you've already been taking a supplement containing folate ahead of time. Now, as a reminder, we prefer folate or methylfolate to folic acid because folic acid is the synthetic version. It does come in most prenatal vitamins and some people find it hard to absorb um, folic acid. And most people could absorb folate, so we prefer to go that way. Now, it is also at this point, never a bad idea to ask your doctor for a blood test to work out which levels you are deficient in and if you're deficient at all. Now, vitamin D is a common one and is crucial for things like healthy hormonal balance. It's also increasingly being linked to helping immunity and developing children and is really important during pregnancy. So we'll come and talk about that a lot more um, later in the podcast. So it's always, always recommended to get your levels tested before you're taking any supplement and your doctor should do this if you ask. DHA is another one of our favourites. It's also well, it's part of the omega-3 family and it's great for reducing chronic inflammation, promoting healthy brain development. So that's something good to have. And finally, if you really want to give a helping hand to implantation, you may want to consider taking a lactobacillus supplement. Now, to be very clear, the science is new in this area, but there's evidence to suggest that if the reproductive microbiome and the bacteria um, down below is as it should be, which is lactobacillus dominant, that that can potentially be helpful. So once again, we've got a lot more on the site about that. Now, what about eating and drinking? Should you start avoiding just in case implantation happens? Now, if you've been actively trying to get pregnant, it's likely you've already cut down on things like alcohol and caffeine. Now, caffeine is an interesting one because research suggests that in excess, it can potentially cause complications. We've got a lot more on the site about that. Now, the official guidelines for pregnancy are two cups a day in Europe and up to three in the US. Obviously, different guidelines for different regions. However, the evidence seems to suggest that to be on the safe side, it's best to stick to as low as you can, particularly in the early stages. Cigarettes are an obvious no at any stage. They are absolutely to blame for increasing cell damage in the body. And that includes to egg and sperm and is something to avoid at any point. Then alcohol, tricky one. If a glass of wine now and again helps you to feel relaxed, then that's not a bad thing. However, of course... During the very early stages, it's worth avoiding if you can. That being said, many people don't realise they're pregnant in the very earliest days and drink on regardless. But of course, if you're on a mission to have a healthy baby, then being as moderate as you can with alcohol is never going to be a bad idea. Now, speaking of relaxation, many of us have a hard time being out of control at the best of times, especially when it's as important as having a baby. And during this time, perhaps one of the most important things you can do is to try and relax. 
Now, obviously, that's easier said than done. And we also know how annoying it is when someone tells you to just relax. Pretty much guarantees that you're going to do the opposite. Now, one of the things we're going to be talking about later in the podcast is about managing anxiety and one of the ways specifically being meditation. And even for those who are most stressed, um, we found that these tips and tricks can be really helpful. Now, investing your time and energy and focus into yourself and feeling good is probably the most powerful thing you can do at this point. So whether it's simply being kind to yourself, not only in what you do physically, but the way you speak to yourself, keeping positive, giving yourself permission to relax and loosen control, because as we say, this bit really isn't in your control at this point. These are all really good things to do. So we will talk a little bit more about meditation later in the podcast. And there's a lot more from some of our expert advisors on practical ways how you can manage anxiety for every stage up on the site. Now, the next question is when to do a pregnancy test. A lot of us want to test as early as possible. Which technically speaking, you can now do with products like First Response. Now, they advertise the ability to test six days before your missed period. However, even they admit on their website that some pregnant women may not have detectable amounts of pregnancy hormone on, in their urine on the day they use the test. So, for example, when I was pregnant with my son, the first pregnancy test I took was negative. Now, it doesn't take a scientist to work out that the amount of pregnancy hormone increases as the pregnancy progresses. So the odds of a test getting it right increase as you get closer to your missed period. Now, on First Response's website, they themselves quote that uh, 76% of women had detectable levels seven, oh, sorry, five days before their missed period, which means the, the, the rest of them had an undetected amount despite being pregnant. But this rises to 99% three days before your period is due. So ideally, wait at least until then to minimise the risk of an inaccurate test. So putting this all together is actually not rocket science. This is time to relax and let go. You've done all you can do. So now it's just about being sensible. Moderate exercise, prenatal supplements, which hopefully you've already been taking, getting sleep, eating whole real foods, avoiding too much alcohol and caffeine, no smoking, and focusing on being kind to yourself is never going to be a bad thing. And good luck with taking the test. Okay, so next up is about vitamin D. Now, science is fast appreciating that not only is vitamin D crucial for bone health, which is something we've known about for a long time, but it also plays a role in things like reproduction for both men and women, for brain development and the immune system. So it's pretty important across the board for our purposes. In fact, it seems increasingly clear that not having enough can play a part in the root cause of many issues that we as parents and parents-to-be may face. And it turns out the science is increasingly recognising vitamin D as one of the most important things. And this is for every stage of the journey. So we're going to take a look at what you need to know. Now, first up, one thing to know, and you may well know this from the press, um, but many of us are actually deficient. Of course, there are various assessments as to how many of us really are. But some research talks about as much as 40% of the population, particularly in the Northern Hemisphere. So key thing number one that we always bang on about is get your levels tested and checked. 
But aside from that, we're just going to go through the main things that science is discovering, really where vitamin D plays a role and where you may well want to be thinking about um, your vitamin D levels. So first up is conception. Bottom line is there is growing evidence that vitamin D supports reproductive health. And in fact, did you know that vitamin D is not just a vitamin, it's actually a steroid hormone. Interestingly enough, the receptors for it have been found across all the reproductive organs, all the main ones. And this is from the testes to the endometrium. And when you have receptors present, it suggests they're there for, the reason, for a reason. Normally, the body doesn't make mistakes. Now, for the boys, we've talked about this before. Although there's less conclusive evidence around its role in, say, t testosterone production, studies have shown a beneficial effect of vitamin D on male fertility. And it looks as though this is related to its impact on semen quality and most specifically on sperm motility. And we did a whole piece just on this. If you want to check out www.thejourney.com. And obviously that's an important part of the picture. We also know that it may play a role in the protection of sperm. And there is in fact evidence to suggest that having enough vitamin D may be specifically protective against something that is known to really be a problem for sperm and that's DNA damage or fragmentation. And this comes from oxidative stress, something that sperm cells are particularly vulnerable to. And once again, we've got a lot more on the website about this. Next up, as we were talking about before, implantation. Now, vitamin D also seems to play a role in implantation of a fertilized egg. So there's a specific molecule involved in implantation, and this molecule has been found to be regulated by the active form of vitamin D, D3, and that's in human endometrial cells. So once again, making sure you have enough, particularly around implantation, is not a bad idea. Speaking of which, there has been quite a lot of work looking at vitamin D and women with hormonal imbalances like polycystic ovarian syndrome. Now we know that vitamin D plays a role in reproduction, but also in glucose metabolism. And these are two things that are common issues for people with PCOS. Now, what's interesting is that studies have suggested that as much as 65 to 85% of women with PCOS have a vitamin D deficiency. Now, being completely clear, it's not entirely obvious from research at the moment when it comes to PCOS that taking a vitamin D supplement will make everything go away. And it's also not clear what's caused what's effect. It's definitely mixed results. However, there is clearly a link, so making sure you have enough is absolutely not a bad thing. And in fact, research is also linking low vitamin D with increased levels of inflammation. And chronic low-level inflammation is common in people who suffer from PCOS, as well as things like endometriosis. And once again, we've got a lot more about this on the site. Not good and not what you want for anyone. Now, speaking of which, obviously inflammation relates to the immune system. And what we're also realising is that having enough during pregnancy can potentially help reduce infections in our little ones. Now, particularly around common childhood infections like ear, stomach, and even asthma in early childhood. Now, asthma is another condition that re relates essentially to a misfiring immune system and inflammation. And some research is linking it more 
showing an increased chance of it developing if you have lower vitamin D during pregnancy. Now, once again, this isn't conclusive because it's quite hard to isolate cause factors and there are studies ongoing to attempt to confirm this. And funnily enough, one study found a relationship between how much vitamin D intake a mother had during pregnancy and asthma symptoms. And this study found that high levels were associated with significantly lower odds of, of hospitalisation for asthma. And then the flip side, um, where you have too low. So clearly there is a part to play, even though research here is still ongoing. Not only that, vitamin D has been shown to play a role in brain development. And once again, it's all about having enough during pregnancy. So as we've said, vitamin D system is known for its impact on bone mineral density, but actually optimal levels have been shown to be required for brain function, things like calcium signaling and even neuroprotective factors amongst others. So once again, there's much more on the site about that. And in fact, several studies have shown evidence linking not having enough during pregnancy to impairment in cognitive outcomes. So things related to language, motor development. And of course, there are many factors at play. But again, this is something within our control and something we can take charge of. So with all this, you probably get by now that it's pretty important. The question is, how much do you get and how much of the right sort? So it seems increasingly important that we get it. But how much is enough? Now, interestingly enough, because life's never simple, you also don't want too much because vitamin D is a fat-soluble vitamin, which means it is stored by the body with excess. So it's as simple as we keep saying is get yourself tested. Now, during pregnancy, you'll get many blood tests done, but always be clear with your doctor about asking for your vitamin D test. Uh, it's never, ever a harm to ask and to make sure you get your results. Now, what impacts your own individual level of vitamin D? Because everyone is very individual. Now, it may seem obvious, but you can't really get a lot from your diet. We know that the most significant source of vitamin D is via sunlight. So to give you an idea, half an hour of sunlight delivers 50,000 international units of vitamin D with Caucasian skin. And what's worth being aware is that skin pigmentation lowers the amount of vitamin D synthesis that you get from UV exposure. So basically, the darker your skin, the less you get. Now, what on earth does 50,000 international units mean? Sometimes these numbers can be really complicated and confusing. But to put it into context, the official recommendation from the UK Chief Medical Officers and the NICE guidelines suggests that all pregnant and breastfeeding women should take 10 micrograms of vitamin D supplement daily, and that's equivalent to about 400 international units. So how do you know if you are deficient, are there any symptoms? Once again, pretty much there are not. So it's all about getting a blood test, but you will probably know if you've got risk factors for being deficient. So if you live in an area with less sunlight or you spend a lot of time indoors, obviously during the winter months when the days are shorter, and if you're always covering your skin and using a high factor sunblock, if you've got darker skin, if you're obese as well, so that's a BMI plus 30. If you're a vegan, because although we can't get a lot of vitamin D from our diet, it is from eggs and oily fish. And then genetics. Some people have genetic abnormalities which impact how vitamin D is metabolized and transported around the body. So again, another reason to get tested. So how do we actually get more? 
Of course, sun exposure is a tricky thing and we're now much more aware of the danger of too much sun. It's never easy. But the good news is you don't actually need to sunbathe. Typically, just 15 minutes a day in the sun, two or three times a week should be enough in sunny weather. You only really need to expose your arms and face. But again, everyone's different. It depends on your skin type, the time of day and the time of year. So once again, if in doubt, particularly during this vulnerable time, get tested. Now, it's also about getting the right form of vitamin D. Now, vitamin D3 is the active form and it's the one you want. And it's also fat soluble. So ideally, you want to take it with a fat. So... All in all, I think we get it by now, vitamin D is important to have. It's also important to get your levels tested. So never be shy to ask for that. And finally, if you can't get out in the sun enough, D3 supplements are the way to go, fat soluble, and much more information is out on the site. So speaking of supplements, we get asked constantly about our top supplement recommendations. Now, the most important thing to remember is that we do have a bit of a love-hate relationship with supplements. However, when it is done in a conscious and mindful way, and that means talking to your doctor, having your individual levels checked, and doing your homework on the right ones for you, there is some evidence-based research showing that certain supplements can be helpful for some of the specific challenges we may encounter at every stage. So we're going to go through what you need to know. Now, as we said, the main reason we're cautious on supplements, we've got much more on the site about this at thejourney.com, is because everyone is different with different needs. No two people are the same. And unfortunately, with the multi-billion dollar supplement market, we're often these days sold cure-alls by these companies. And if only it was that simple. The other problem, of course, is that not enough people test their individual levels, and that can make taking supplements a bit dangerous because there is such a thing as too much. It's actually called hypervitaminosis, and it's really important, again, to talk to your doctor and test your levels. And it's also because the supplement market is unregulated because there's varying qualities and amounts depending on the brand you use. And finally, because the body really is designed in the majority of cases to either produce its own um, vitamins and minerals or get it from food, albeit something that we know all too well can be a challenge in our modern life. So, as we said, there is a right time and place for supplements. It's just about finding what is right for you as an individual. We, of course, believe that knowledge is power. So, what we're going to do is go through a list of some of our favourites that are evidence-based if this is not an exhaustive list, it's just some of the things where we think science is backing them and where we think the benefits could well be meaningful depending on your stage of journey. So we're going to be looking at supplements for hormonal imbalance. Obviously, there is a lot of us these days, stress, PCOS, thyroids, egg and sperm quality, which is obviously challenged by our lifestyles, for developing brains, pregnancy and beyond, even for colic and sicky babies, and for endometriosis and infertility. So what about for hormones? Now, our modern world does a fantastic job at pushing our body's ability to keep our hormones in balance off. Many of us now even unknowingly suffer with these imbalances, so we're going to just chat about some of our favourite helping hands for this. 
So the first one is inositol, which is a supplement for PCOS and even for gestational diabetes. Now, 70% of women with PCOS have insulin resistance and 50% of people who have PCOS are undiagnosed. So we've got a lot on the site at thejourney.com about PCOS, some of the signs and things to look out for. But essentially, one of the main culprits that causes these symptoms and problems is this insulin resistance. And the problem with that is that can have a knock-on effect to other hormones and it can mean too much free testosterone and not enough of the carrier of that testosterone to ensure it gets into the right place. And that's what causes many of our problems. Now, in short, inositol has shown that over a 24-week period, it has shown notable positive results in terms of reducing insulin and testosterone and LH, plus increasing the SHBG, which carries the testosterone to the right place in the body. These are all things we, we want. It has also shown some positive results when it comes to the prevention of gestational diabetes, although more research does need to be done, and particularly with those who've got PCOS. Now, how much do you want? The science suggests that around 400 milligrams per day is a good starting point, but, and we will reiterate this a lot, just be aware, it's always best to speak to your doctor first. Particularly if you suspect you may be suffering from PCOS, it's always good to get a proper diagnosis. Now, vitamin D3 is the other one that we've just talked about. We will spare you that. And then it's about the adaptogens, maca and ashwagandha. Now, what is an adaptogen? Well, these are specific plants who are officially classified as adaptogen. And that means that they've essentially shown a clinical ability to help the body rebalance its own hormones. Now, two in particular have shown clinical promise for our purposes. And the first is maca. Now, the beauty of this root is that unlike, say, soy, which basically mimics estrogen, maca actually relies on plant sterols, which effectively trigger a chain reaction, helping the body modulate its own hormonal production better. So it's nothing adding. It's just supporting your body do what it does best. And it looks like it has numerous benefits as a result of this. So it targets not one hormone specifically, but a broad spectrum. And this includes the stress hormones, LH reduction, and it's also even been linked to improved mood, energy and libido. So pretty much winning all around. Now, speaking of stress, stress reduction, can a supplement help? Now, we all know that our modern lives are stressful and this is where ashwagandha comes in. Now, the evidence is pretty conclusive that high levels of the stress hormone, cortisol, is not good for us over a long period of time, particularly when it comes to having a small person, which can in itself be stressful. Now, obviously, addressing the root cause of your stress is a top priority. However, once you've done this, ashwagandha may be something to help support your, your body deal with the physical effects. And in fact, it has shown evidence in human trials of lowering cortisol levels in the blood by as much as 30% after 60 days. Now, how much do you take? With both of these, the first thing to do, again, is to speak to your doctor. The second thing to do is absolutely not to take them if you're pregnant and breastfeeding. There has not been any research done on this, and it's always best to stay away. Once you pass these two hurdles, always read the manufacturer's guidelines and start small. See how you get on and then build up gradually. Everyone's different, so it's always good to start slow. 
Now, a curveball when it comes to helping uh, our hormones is the gut. Now, you didn't really think you could get away with a podcast from us with no mention of the gut, did you? Well, one interesting fact is it's actually the biggest hormone producer in the body. So when it comes to looking after hormonal balance, you really have to think about this. Now, we're not talking supplements per se because it's complicated when it comes onto the subject of probiotics. We've got so much more on the site about that. But we've got some practical science-based ways you can focus on improving your gut health up on the site. So it's worth checking that out. Next up, egg and sperm quality. So whether we like it or not, our age and lifestyles don't generally help preserve our all-important egg and sperm. Now, we've taken a look at some of the supplements that can help a difference, either halting the decline or protecting these very important elements. First up is CoQ10 or ubiquinol. Now, oxidative stress is something that causes damage to our cells. So, for example, the reason we say don't smoke is because it causes a lot of oxidative stress in the body. And that's one example, but there are lots and lots of factors that can cause this potential damage. Now, CoQ10 is an antioxidant. Basically, it means it fights potential source of damage, which is a good start. Now, it is produced naturally in the body, but unfortunately, it does decline as we age. Now, the trouble is, research shows that oxidative stress plays a significant role in diminished egg reserve and sperm quality. Now, CoQ10 has shown benefit from a protection point of view, and it's also shown benefits around ovulation, amongst other things. Now, sperm is particularly vulnerable to oxidative stress, So antioxidants are something that can be useful to tackle the damage. But once again, it's always worth talking to your doctor about this. How much? Well, the good news is that research has suggested there's no major downside risk to taking this particular antioxidant. And it's safe up to around 900 milligrams per day. But like with everything, you really don't want too much. Now, the less good news is that there's not a lot of research around how much is ideal and how long to take it for. But a lot of the studies on this suggest a range of about 200 to 500 milligrams per day. Now, when we talk about CoQ10 and ubiquinol, it's basically the same thing. Ubiquinol is just one form of CoQ10. And on the margin, research has said that it's a little bit more bioavailable for the body. Now, speaking of cell damage and how we can protect from it, which is obviously important for all aspects of our health, that comes on to glutathione and N-acetylcysteine. Sounds complicated, but actually it's not. These are just defenders of our cells. Now, glutathione is known as the master antioxidant. And the good news is is that the body produces it itself. It is one of our best forms of defense against cell damage. The bad news is that it depletes, particularly if your body is facing a lot of toxic exposure, physical stress, and as we age. It's not something, unfortunately, you can take in most supplement forms because it gets lost in digestion. However, this is where N-acetylcysteine comes in. Now, this is one of the building blocks to help the body make its own glutathione. And even better, it's an antioxidant in its own right. So research has shown this is an excellent tool for the body to defend itself and its cells. And it's shown to be nice and safe. So we've got much more on the site about that. Next up, meat stock. Yes, okay, this is not a supplement, but this provides the building blocks for the body to make its own glutathione. It's also a staple for helping that all-important gut wall. So it's pretty good all round. So once again, if you want to learn a bit more about that, we've got much more on the site. Now, a curveball here is intermittent fasting. 
So once again, not a supplement, but research has shown lots of benefit for health from intermittent fasting. Now, what's this? We've got much more on the site about this and the science, but in a nutshell, this is where you fast for a period of time. Now, it can be something like 5-2, which is where you eat normally for five days, and then on two days of a week, you have very restricted calories, or something like the 16-8, which is basically putting all the eating you do in a day into just eight hours and then fasting for the remaining 16. Now, crucially, recent research has shown that doing this can potentially reduce the speed and decline in our eggs in particular in terms of their quality. So worth checking out. Next up, supplements for pregnancy and developing brains and immunity. So we mentioned this before, but folate. We know that folic acid, which is the common thing that most people think about, is something we need. But folic acid is the synthetic version of what we really need, which is folate. Once again, some people can absorb this due to the genetic difference. So methylfolate or folate is the food form and is much easier for the body to absorb. Now, how much do you want? Well, the official recommendation is 400 micrograms before, during pregnancy and while breastfeeding. But it's important to remember to have it in your system before pregnancy because birth defects can really occur at the earliest stages. So by taking it ahead of time, you're just reducing your risks and it's always good to be proactive. Now, next is DHA. Now, healthy brain development is obviously something we want, and research is discovering that one of the ways we can get into trouble across many areas is a result of chronic inflammation. And once again, we've got a lot more on the site about this. It's also even being linked to things like chronic anxiety and depression, so it's not just necessarily physical. Now, the good news is, is that DHA, which is commonly found in oily fish, is an excellent protector against this. And research shows it's also powerful in protecting cells and giving developing brains a helping hand. So if you don't want to go down the supplement route, then it's one to two portions of oily fish low down the food chain. And if you are taking a supplement, do make sure that it is from wild fish and low down the food chain to reduce your chances of other toxins. Once again, vitamin D crops up in which we will spare you from. And then comes to the probiotics question is, are they worth it and which ones? Now, once again, we're fast realising the power of a healthy gut for most things to do with our health. When it comes to probiotic supplements, the jury's very much out. But what is becoming clear is that there's supportive evidence for use of very specific strains for specific issues. So, for example, did you know that research is mounting for um, use of lactobacillus ruteri or colic or sicky babies, so basically babies that regurgitate quite a lot of their milk and spitting up. Now, the good news is, is that research suggests this is safe even in preterm babies, but of course, as usual, it goes without saying, but we'll say it anyway, always speak to your doctor first. But if your baby does have colic, it may be worth investigating. We've got much more on the site about that. Now, what about for building immunity? Once again, we know about the power of the gut for immunity especially helping reduce the risk for things like autoimmune conditions and allergies. Now, the research is still in its infancy, but we are realising that fibre, or more specifically prebiotic fibre, having enough during pregnancy can be powerful in helping reduce the risks, particularly around certain autoimmune conditions. Now, if you can't get enough of um, probiotic fibre, prebiotic fibre in your diet, then inulin fibre that you can buy in a store can be worth checking out. 
Start slow, however, particularly if you're pregnant, as digestion can be tricky during this time. But it's always, once again, worth speaking to your doctor first, especially if you're pregnant. And we prefer, frankly, getting our fibre from natural food sources. Now, what about um, probiotic supplements for endometriosis and infertility? Well, recent research has identified that we all have a reproductive microbiome and men too. When this is out of balance, even subtly, we're not talking major infections, there are links to endometriosis, infertility, and even miscarriage. Now, work here, once again, is still in its infancy. However, one strain of lactobacillus, lactobacillus ramosus, and I've probably pronounced that wrong, but it's up on the site, is showing some encouraging results. So it's worth a chat with your doctor about, at the very least. And we've put uh, Dr. Kuroshi on our advisory board's top two picks. So of course, finally, this is not an exhaustive list. Everyone has different needs. This is just a list of some of the helping hands that science says could be useful on our journey. Click the links on the site on this particular article for much, much more detail. And remember, in case we haven't said it enough, get tested and always speak to your doctor first. Finally, to end on a nice relaxing note, it's all about meditation. Now, we are increasingly being told, and we've told you as well on this past podcast, that meditation and mindfulness is a good thing to do. And this is for stress, for our health overall. And we're even more being told that it can be powerful for conception, pregnancy, birth and early years. And we've got a lot on the science of it on the site. In fact, what's interesting is our entire advisory board practices and advocates it. That being said, it can be really, really hard to do. I, for one, really struggled with it for a long time. But no matter how time poor or tough you find it, we try and break down the how-to to make meditation achievable for everyone. And we do this with the help of our resident psychotherapist, Emmy Branner, who's pretty much been the only person to help me do it. Now, here are Emmy's top tips for making meditation possible. Now, she says that it turns out when many people start out on the journey to try and meditate, they may be inadvertently setting themselves up to fail, and I know I certainly did. Main reason is because they start with unrealistic ambitions. So you know the drill, you set out 30 minutes of zen lying down in a dark room. If you can manage to carve out that amount of time, which probably most can't, you then probably last a minute before you start thinking about your to-do list and then you feel rubbish that you can't do it and you're doing it wrong and then you just give up. Maybe that's just me, but that's certainly how it used to pan out for me. Instead, here are some of the ways that Emmy suggests are the best way to approach meditation for lasting, meaningful and beneficial practice. So number one is to start small. So Emmy's view is that when it comes to most things mind health related, It's about starting in a manageable and bite-sized way. Do not set yourself up for something huge, especially if you're not someone who's ever meditated before, because it's actually really hard to do at first, especially if you're very stressed and really need it. The good news is, is that research shows that just a few minutes can have a positive impact. And I, for one, have been listening to five to 10 minute guided meditations and found it a really good gateway. Number two, there's a reason why we call it meditation practice. It's because it isn't easy at first. So the key is to keep going, persistence and building up. 
This is why it's called practice, because it takes practice and you have to keep doing it. But the good news is the more you do it, the easier it gets. So don't give up. Number three, it's about finding what works for you. On our recent podcast with Emmy, talking about anxiety and ways to manage it, one of the things she talks about is her own practice. So Emmy gave us an example that she meditates when she's coming to work on the train in the morning. She listens to a 10-minute meditation, guided or just music. But that's what works for Emmy. For me, it's a five-minute guided meditation when I'm on the go, actually. But the key, however, is to find out what works for you as an individual. And remember that what works for one person might not work for you. So it's about finding your own groove. And number four on that note is giving yourself permission to explore. Some people like guided meditation. Some people just like to listen to music. Other people just like to take a walk in, in nature. The key is to play around and experiment. It is so individual. And just because someone else finds something useful doesn't mean you will. So just give yourself a bit of permission to explore and be creative and find what resonates with you. And don't worry if it takes a bit of time, you'll get there in the end. Number five, am I doing it right? Now, many of us are immediately conscious of doing it right and quickly feel we're not achieving the state that we quote unquote should be. Emmy's view is that this isn't wrong. It's just something to notice. That's the whole point of mindfulness. It's about observing your thoughts and feelings but in a non-judgmental way. So simply notice if you're thinking about doing it correctly. That's something to notice about yourself and is part of your meditation practice. And on that note, number six, be compassionate. Mindful meditation is all about being compassionate with yourself, noticing your thoughts and feelings without judgment. And this particularly applies to starting out. So observe and understand what's working or not working for you. Be open to trying different things and not everything will work for you and that's okay. Number seven, it shouldn't be a chore. It's a bit like exercise or anything really. If what you're doing feels like a real chore, you're probably not going to keep going. So just change it. Meditation works best when it's something you enjoy and it's done consistently. So you need to find a way that works for you and that will help you stick to it. Emmy talked about giving herself permission to meditate wherever she is. So for her, it's not about sitting in a dark room alone for 20 minutes. Even with a very busy schedule, she'll make time to do, say, 10 or 20 minutes wherever she is and wherever she can. So it's about finding what you do and what's realistic. Find your own sanctuary. Number eight, meditation shouldn't be about rules. Emmy says that it's actually about giving herself permission to give herself what she needs. There are no rules as long as you are nurturing your own practice. So once again, not putting lots of pressure on yourself, not creating rules about what you have to do, making sure you're comfortable, making sure you're actually enjoying doing it. Otherwise, you're setting yourself up for failure and not feeling good. And that's not what this is about. So bottom line, it's all about giving yourself a shot, being kind and being compassionate and giving yourself a chance to make meditation work for you. We've got an awful lot more on the site if you want to dig down into the science behind it or you want to see Emmy's top tips and particularly her top tips dealing with anxiety. It's all on thejourneydoc.com. We hope you've enjoyed this week and tune in next week.